This is Rio Pacino with another Bearing Point podcast. On this podcast is Brian Hart, who is Managing Director at Bearing Point, and he's here to talk about the seven steps to more effective performance and risk management. Brian, first off, talk about the seven steps and what they offer. If we just take one step back and talk about what we mean by performance and risk management and what those seven steps uh, mean in terms of helping you improve that, every bank and capital markets organization has a very real need to manage a very complex constraint, and that is capital. And it comes in many forms, and over the years, uh, the debate in this space has raged in varying degrees of intensity over uh, the different types of capital, how much you should have, how you should measure it, what should comprise your capital structure, et cetera. But regardless, uh, today that debate has dramatically shifted on the heels of the crisis to really one fundamental question, which is, how do I make the best use of capital and the capital that I have, and what do I need to know to have confidence that I'm doing just that? So with all that in mind, that's kind of the backdrop to the strategy that we've outlined in our seven steps. Um, And if I take each one of them individually, uh, essentially first, uh, we recommend that every organization push their analytic methods to the absolute limit. This has been a major area of focus for our clients for many, many years. But even with that, there are still pockets of analytic inefficiency. And a great example of that is in the credit space around LGDs or loss given default. Um, Traditionally, these have been uh, very difficult uh, estimates to measure, but they have a very distinct impact on how much capital uh, you allocate to a given transaction or to a given business. Uh, And benchmark approaches have been used in the past, which really – Uh, I would consider them to be highly uh, inefficient, mainly because uh, they are based on, um, you know, very often a given consultant's experience and having done work at various other institutions, and they say roughly at other places, we've estimated it to be X, 20, 30, 40 percent, whatever it might be. The challenge with that is, is that it typically fails to reflect certain dimensions of your business. So in other words, it's based on somebody else's shop. So it doesn't reflect your organization's uh, specific asset expertise, process excellent, credit culture, policy, procedures, etc., and the way you conduct business in your customer base. So by using those benchmark methods, you, A, get through an exercise and you can allocate capital, which, you know, is not an easy task, but uh, you're typically overly conservative. And if you look at all the data that we find when we go from client to client, they typically find themselves in a place where they can say, yes, this is a conservative estimate for LGD, uh, but they can't say it should be more. Uh, I'm sorry, they, they can't say it should be better, it should be lower, it should be a better estimate for us uh, based on the data that we do have. So they have just enough to demonstrate that it's appropriate for capital, uh, but they can't really say what the actual number is, and they, they rely on these benchmark estimates. So what ends up happening is that because they take an analytic shortcut, um, they're overestimating the amount of capital a given facility or a given transaction actually drives. So that's, that's number one. The challenge that typically drives people to that is data, which brings us to our second uh, point, which is if you're going to try to optimally uh, use your balance sheet, um, you should be very strategic about how you approach your data challenge. And, um, you know, if you go around from shop to shop on the street, typically, you know, what you'll find is a group of uh, quantitative or, or capital-type people who are focused on this problem who are saying to themselves, let me go out into our organization see what kind of data we might have out there in various systems and databases and whatever else you might have, and let me figure out what I can do with that data. As opposed to saying, um, let's figure out what the right measures are for our business, 
that reflect all the dimensions of our business, how we conduct business, the businesses that we're in, the kind of people that we have, the culture we have, etc. cetera. Uh, and then from there, let's go out and seek that data. And if we don't have it, then let's come up with a strategy to make sure that going forward we do have it. So our view is, is we need to drop uh, the traditional approaches around being very reactive and saying we have this body of data and we're going to be content with just that. And as a result, we're going to be very ineffective and over-allocate capital to our businesses and instead go to a more proactive approach around setting direction around what measures we want for capital and then going out finding or creating that data on a go-forward basis. Very challenging. But once you have that, <clears throat> then you have very accurate measures of risk, performance, and capital, right? If you have those very accurate measures of risk, performance, and capital, you can then go about saying, what do I need to do to pr- improve each of those dimensions, right? And if I understand what I need to do to improve each of those dimensions, I can go after very specific things, be they I need to change how I conduct business, whether it's um, uh, you know, maybe uh, in structuring deals differently, whether it's uh, making sure I'm adequately staffed from a workout perspective to reduce losses over time, whatever it might be. If I know exactly what those measures are and they are true reflections of my business, then I can do the third dimension or the third thing that we recommend, which is start to examine how you're actually conducting business. And over time, by making improvements to that process or making improvements to how you structure deals or making improvements to whatever, uh, you'll begin to improve those three dimensions of risk, capital, and return. Fourth, um, we recommend putting much better uh, information and tools in the hands of people who are actually driving transactions in the marketplace. Great examples of this are, you know, on your trading floor. You know, traditionally, uh, what has happened is uh, risk managers and people who calculate capital, they sit uh, behind the trading desks, and uh, transactions are executed every day. And on a T plus 1, a T plus 2, or a T plus 3 basis, they'll get what they consider to be uh, a scrubbed body of information that accurately reflects uh, the body of transactions that happened on a given day. They will calculate risk, and then they will calculate capital, and then they'll look at P&L, and they'll look at all that together, and they'll say, Three days ago, this is what we put on our books. This is how much risk it was. Here's how much money we made. And as a result of all that, here's the kind of capital we're going to allocate against it. That is uh, not exactly the way you help traders navigate through a very complex market. And um, in this market in particular, where balance sheets are very thin, um, they need to know what types of deals they should pass on, what types of deals they should go after, uh, what kind of businesses should be exited altogether, what sort of strategies should be avoided, all those things. And to do that, you need to take that sort of back-end, very defensive capability that we just talked about and need to push it into the front office so that they have tools to know certain types of deals are very efficient from a capital perspective and they make us money, certain types are not. Uh, so that's, that's number four, and that's a very important one. That's a very big trend, although still emerging. But more and more places that I talk to, uh, people are receptive to that idea. Uh, I think number five is an area where you know, the market is uh, somewhat mature in this, but there's a constant need for innovation here, and that's really pursuing capital arbitrage opportunities. And this really sits in the realm of financial engineering. And in the past, things like uh, securitization has clearly been in the news quite a bit lately, have played a big role here in that they're slightly more capital efficient than outright loans, for example, on your balance sheet. Nonetheless, um, that sort of innovation should continue uh, because that innovation frees up capital on your balance sheet and allows you to do more transacting and pursue P&L. I think number six, 
uh, we talk about changing the incentive structure. So even if you have all these great tools and you have all this great information, all this great data, uh, and all the great analytics uh, that we talked about, if you don't change how people are compensated, they're not going to change their behavior. So if you're paying a group of traders to put P&L on the books, basically make a lot of money, it, you know, the amount of risk they take on will be second in their mind, not necessarily first. And how much capital they consume will be an annoying constraint that they have to keep in the back of their head as they pursue P&L. But if you change the incentive structure so that they have to consider not just how much money we're making, but how much risk we're taking on in order to make that money and how much balance sheet we're consuming as we make that money, then I think you have a very different paradigm in place. And that's something that needs to be addressed in order to truly uh, get the sort of benefits that we're talking about here. And it's something that's I would consider to be very difficult given the longstanding traditions, uh, particularly on Wall Street, around compensation and being very sort of uh, P&L-based. Uh, so it doesn't exactly incent you to uh, be very careful, other, you know, other than, of course, you know, people being just good corporate citizens and doing what they think is best for the organization, which there are a lot of people who think that way. Nonetheless, you know, if I'm a manager and I want to have gr- a great deal of comfort that my front office is transacting in a way that puts on capitally efficient deals that make us very good money, um, having an incentive structure that pushes people in that direction is a very powerful tool. Uh, and then finally, I would say um, what we've talked about quite a bit, which is um, an integrated performance and risk management framework. So that essentially is the framework that pulls all of this together. I have the data. I have the analytics. I have the tools. I have the incentive structures. I am addressing the ways in which I do business. And I have a reporting framework that allows me to monitor all of those different dimensions to ensure that my organization is turning the way I want it to turn, we're putting on the kind of risk we want to put on. We're making the kind of money we want to make. And we've got the balance sheet available to us to continue to transact. And uh, I'd say that there are other dimensions that we haven't mentioned, but those are what I would consider your most challenging dimensions. There are some other areas where you can get, I'd say, quick wins around um, sort of balance, balance sheet uh, classification strategies for different types of assets, uh, banking book versus otherwise, and, of course, legal entity strategies in terms of do we book this deal or that deal in the, the bank or the broker-dealer. But those are what I would consider low-hanging fruit, and the bigger challenges are the seven that I laid out. Brian, why is this solution especially relevant at this point in time? Uh, it's a great question. Uh, probably more relevant now than uh, uh, it, uh, since the beginning of the decade, actually, mainly because of one reason, uh, you know, the, the, the market turmoil that we're uh, reading about so much in the press. Essentially, the, the collapse of the credit markets have really resulted in unprecedented losses. And if you look at um, all the analysts out there that are talking about the event, uh, Goldman Sachs, for example, came out last week and estimated total losses, total credit losses, uh, would approximate $450 billion. $450 billion. Uh, and uh, that, I mean, A, that is an unprecedented uh, amount of loss. Um, half that from uh, the mortgage sector, which is uh, consists 200 and some odd billion dollars there, and another 20% for the commercial space. So uh, all of those things taken together, um, you know, that's just an unprecedented uh, hit to our financial system that's been likened uh, in the Wall Street Journal to, uh, you know, the, the effects of the Great Depression. Now, of course, we have 
great mechanisms in place now that weren't in place back then to prevent, you know, or to, to limit the, the downside and the length of that impact. Nonetheless, it's tremendous. And because of that, banks and broker-dealers and investment banks have a very challenging question in front of them, which is we have a lot less capital to allocate than we have in the past, and we need to roll back our risk and exposure in certain businesses that in the past drove the majority of our profitability. So where do we put that? We don't know. So that's number one. Number two, if I'm sitting in the trading business, I have a lot less balance sheet that's been allocated to me. If I sit in the mortgage business, I have a lot less balance sheet that's been allocated to me. So I have to find a way to make more money with less capital. And that's a very, very challenging question. So for those two reasons, uh, managers are going to be looking for uh, strategies and capabilities that enable them to do just that, to go out into the market, place the sort of bets that appropriately balance risk, return, and capital. How can taking these steps give organizations a competitive edge? Uh, you know, essentially, that is, that is the whole point. And um, it's, actually, it's actually quite simple. Um, in the constrained balance sheet game, uh, it takes more than just smart traders or smart lenders uh, or anybody who's actually uh, executing transactions on your behalf uh, to win. In the past, that was all the game. You wanted the smartest people in the front office, and you still do. But in the, in the, in, I guess in the past, that was almost enough, where if we made um, uh, more P&L than the guy next to us, if we put on more sides, if we had a big balance sheet to park assets, uh, we would win. But in reality, now a lot of that has changed. And everybody has got, you know, some people would argue that having a balance sheet is a good thing to leverage. Not having a balance sheet is a good thing to leverage. Hurt some people, helped other people. Uh, they're going to be debating that for a very long time. The bottom line is, is that we have a lot less to work with right now. And those that implement these capabilities are going to be able to go into the market and make smarter bets that make better use of their balance sheet than their competitors. And that is how the market looks at performance. So that's how you get competitive advantage. Brian, how does this kind of strategy differ from those pursued in the past? I think in the past, um, as we talked about a little bit earlier, um, the strategies were a lot more defensive, meaning um, uh, capital was something of, a, of an afterthought. After I put on the risk onto my balance sheet, you know, what's the impact to me? Uh, how much capital did I consume in doing that? Did I make any money? And if I did, you know, was it enough? But it's too late. I have it. It's sitting on my balance sheet. There's nothing I can do with it now. And you know, we're finding that with a lot of uh, different types of assets uh, that are sitting on bank balance sheets uh, uh, that are only just now starting to move, like LBO debt, for example. Um, the, the difference between that old, backward-looking, defensive strategy versus this is that we're talking about enabling people to be more proactive about the sort of risk they take on. So they know the risk, capital, and performance implications before they transact. They go into the market specifically seeking those types of deals, those, that type of business, as opposed to um, you know, just pursuing P&L and then working through the capital implications on the back end. So we're, we're proposing make it more of a proactive process than a reactive process for the very reasons you mentioned around gaining competitive advantage. Brian, what sort of organizations would need this type of strategy? Essentially, if you're a, um, a bank or a broker-dealer, um, this is something that 
um, you are uh, going to have to, in other words, if you, if you trade on a principal basis, for example, um, or if, you, uh, if you're a lender of any sort, uh, essentially subject to regulatory capital rules, this is something that um, you should think about. But perhaps more urgently, if you're an organization that has experienced uh, considerable write-offs as a result of the uh, market crisis, um, now more than ever, this is an important thing uh, for you to be considering because, as you all know, you know, as you, with those write-offs comes constrained capital, constrained balance sheets, and you're going to have to do something uh, to get the most out of it. And there's really very few ways to do that aside from pursuing a strategy uh, such as this. Brian Hart is Managing Director at Bearing Points. Thanks a lot for joining us on this podcast, Brian. My pleasure.